If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Um, we're going to go to a couple different passages this morning, which is a little bit not the norm. I like to kind of stay in one spot. But this morning, we're, we're continuing our series called We Believe, and specifically looking at areas of our faith, the Christian faith, that are non-negotiables, if you will. Um, there are going to be a lot of differences of opinion on, on maybe secondary issues, but, but this series we're going to be doing until maybe the end of November, early December, is about the basic sort of core beliefs of Scripture and of, as, as us as believers that follow the teachings of Jesus. And so, um, so last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1, and we looked at the Creator God, and we begin to notice that this God is, is three, and yet is still one God. Three distinct persons, but yet one God. And so Matthew 16, if you're there with me, uh, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we read verses 13 through 17. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he said, he asked them, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Father, we ask, as we open your word, that you'd speak to us, you would challenge us. God, as we look at, um, as, as we look at who you are, and especially revealed in the person of Jesus, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, hearts to be receptive to your spirit this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples a very important question. Who do you say, or who do people say, the Son of Man is and then Jesus turns that question in more personally, right? He asks them, "Who do who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do you believe me to be?" And, and I don't know how long there was a pause or an awkward silence going on. Maybe um, you know it kind of reminds me of being in class and zoning out in class, and the teacher asking me a question like, uh, "Steve, what's the answer to this?" And I'm like, "All right, anybody else have those moments?" No, everybody else, okay, perfect. Everybody else perfectly, I guess, listened in school. I'm the only one. Uh, makes sense. I'm the pastor, I guess, that I didn't pay attention in school. Um, but I, but I, I'll be like, wait, what? What, 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 are we, what are we talking about, right? And, and so I, I don't know if there was a moment where they zoned out or if they were just like, hopefully he doesn't call on me, right? But he turns it to the disciples and he's like, who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one who responds and responds that you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Here's a couple things I want us to notice about this question as we use this passage as sort of a launching point this morning. The two things we notice about this question is, one, it's a personal question. It's directed. It, it, Jesus asked it in a general way, right? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say Jesus is? If I just asked you, hey, who do people say Jesus is? You, and you went around and asked people, who do you say Jesus is? You might get a lot of different varying responses, kind of like Jesus does here. They start listing off names. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But the question becomes personal because Jesus says, what about you? What about you? The question about who do we say Jesus is, is directed to each and every one of us. There will be a day 
Maybe, maybe way down the road or maybe not too far down the road. There will be a day where we will, each and every one of us will stand before Jesus and give an account for how did we answer this question. Not only is it personal, but the second thing is it demands a response. It demands a response. Later on in this passage, Jesus is going to tell them after Peter's confession that, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There needs to be a response to this question. It, doesn't, it, doesn't cause, it shouldn't cause a neutral faith. It should cause a faith that is following Jesus. And so this morning, we're obviously answering that question. Who is Jesus? Who is this person of Jesus? Because the answer should and will change everything. Um, I, I think I might have used this example before, but Tim Keller, who was a pastor for a long time in New York City. He was on a panel, like a religious panel, uh, with some other religious leaders, and they were just talking about all kind of things, right? Like he was on there with a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam, like a, a Muslim holy person, basically. And they were, they were being, you know, they were talking about the things they could agree on, right? Like they were talking about the things that they had in common, you know, loving your neighbor, taking care of the poor, those sorts of things. But when they got to the person of Jesus, they all three had varying different answers, he either was just a good teacher, he was a failed prophet, or he was and is the Son of God. It's God in the flesh, as we'll see here in a few moments. The answer, who do you say Jesus is, changes everything. When we ask the question of why can't Christians and other world religions agree on the same thing, the reason we can agree on the same thing is because we disagree on the most essential thing, who, which is the person of Jesus. If you do not believe that Jesus is God revealed to humanity, then you are ignoring what the Scriptures teach about God's fullest revelation in His Son. The first question we have to ask, though, before we get into who is Jesus and what did Jesus say about Himself, what did others say about Jesus, was Jesus a real person? Right? Was, was He just a myth? Was He just kind of made up? Here's the thing. Historical scholars agree that there was a man named Jesus who was executed by the Romans and had followers long after his execution. Tacitus, he was a Roman historian, and he says this, and you've probably heard this before, but he says this, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the population. Christus, Christ, from which the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate and then a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their place and become popular. And accordingly, an arrest was first made to all those who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, a immense multitude was convicted, not so much for their crime firing the city, but as a, their hatred against mankind. Obviously, this Roman historian had a huge problem with Christians, but he's pointing to the fact that at some point there was this man, there was this Christ who was executed under Pontius Pilate, exactly the way the Gospels lay it out for us. And he had accumulated followers who began even after his death going and preaching and telling people that this Jesus was alive. Even secular historians have said to deny that the actual existence of a man named Jesus didn't exist, to deny that is just ludicrous. It flies in the face of all sort of just historical norms. 
There is solid historical value that there was a man named Jesus that existed. But let's take that a step further. Was Jesus really divine? Let's see a couple ways that Jesus talks about it, or that actually his followers talk about him, and then we'll see some things that Jesus does here in a few moments. But here's point number one if you're taking notes. Point number one, the Word becomes flesh. The Word becomes flesh. If you would flip over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, just go write a few, few pages to John chapter 1. I guess a few pages, depending on how big your Bible is. I don't know, maybe more than that. But the Word becomes flesh. Remember, we were introduced to the Word in Genesis. There, there, were, there, was, there was God, there was His Word that was being used to speak creation and everything into existence. There was His Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. And so what the Apostle John does is he sort of echoes the creation account. It almost starts off the exact same way. Listen to what he says in verse 1 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was, cre- not one thing was created that has been created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is God, or as one translation says, is fully God, and existed in the beginning with God. And, and John goes on to say that all things were created through this Word. This Word that was in the beginning with God, that was God, that all things were created through him and for him is what Paul, later we see the Apostle Paul say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 16. But again, this account's echoing the creation story in Genesis 1. It's letting us know that Jesus himself, as the Word, was present. The Son of God was present before the foundations of the world were laid and was a critical part of creative order. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. That's a pretty bold statement. Like I said, I alluded to it, but in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 16, the Apostle Paul, talking about Jesus, says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. All things, whether things visible or invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created through him and for him. What Paul's saying Jesus is this visible image of the invisible God, and he echoes basically exactly what John's saying here. Listen, he's a, he, everything, all things created through him, whether things visible, invisible, things unseen or not unseen, thrones, dominions, rulers, principalities, powers, everything was created through Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus. Everything finds their place in Jesus. And that's later, if you go back to John chapter 1, what... John says, he makes this incredible statement about the Word, right? He said, the Word was in the beginning with God and was God, and all things were created through Him, and there was nothing created apart from Him. But in verse 14, what does John say? He makes this incredible statement. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace in truth, John is saying, listen, we, this Word became flesh and has dwelt among us. Like we've actually seen His glory. Some of your passages may say He took up residence among us. Or some translation may literally just translate it, He tabernacled 
with us. John is alluding to kind of the idea of the Old Testament tabernacle, which is basically the idea that God's presence was in a specific spot in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and only certain people, the priests, could access it, right? Like that's, that's basically what's being alluded to. This is what John is saying, that the glory of God has now become visible, and we have seen Him. We've seen Him in the person of Jesus, so point number two, the Word becomes flesh, but now we also see that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. What you'll notice if you read through the Scriptures, if you start at Genesis and you go all the way through the Gospels, you will see this trajectory of God revealing Himself to His creation. God revealing Himself to His creation. Again, we have to understand, like we, we talked about last week, how there might be some different views of God in general. And one of those views might be that God is abstract or somewhere kind of out there. We can't really get a full grasp on who He is or what He is. But, but here's what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that this person, uh, that God, became a human. He, he became flesh and He dwelt among us. Hebrews 1, another passage you can flip to or you can mark to and look at later, it says, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews says this, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir over all things, and He made the universe through Him. You notice there's the exact same language. You've got three different people saying this very similar thing that God has spoken to us by His Son, that God appointed heir over all things and made the universe through Him. All things were created through Him, by Him, for Him. And it says this, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, and He is the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. Like, like the exact, some translations actually put it this way, He's the exact imprint of His nature. I, I mean, think about a stamp, right? When you go and stamp something, as long as it's a good stamp, right? When you stamp something, whatever's on that stamp becomes visible on the paper, Right? Yeah? Is that how stamps work? Okay. Y'all are looking at me blankly. I was just making sure. I was like, maybe I don't know how stamps work. I haven't used them in a while. I am a millennial, so. Um, but but that, that's the idea of a stamp, right? Whatever is on that stamp gets imprinted exactly the way it is onto that piece of paper. I, I think the writer of Hebrews is using this, this example to say that what you see in the person of Jesus is the exact full picture of the nature of who God is. The, what you see in Jesus is exactly who God is. John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, like he, he begins to tell them, he's, he's trying to prepare them a little bit, right, to go to the cross. And they're like, you know, he talks about how he's, he'll leave, but he's going to prepare a place for them. And, you know, they can be with him for eternity and all, all future followers of him and all those things. And the disciples are like, hey, how do we, how do we, how do we follow you? How do we get to the Father? How do we know the Father? And Jesus tells his disciples that if you know me, you know the Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. What is Jesus saying here? 
He's saying, listen, you do know the Father that, I've, that Jesus has been praying to. You do know the Father. You know Him, but now you've actually seen Him because the person of God is fully visible in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, some people have said, did Jesus Himself ever really claim to be God? Did Jesus Himself ever just say flat out, I'm God? Well, there's not really many places where Jesus just specifically says, I am God, but there's a couple places we can see Jesus doing some very God-like things. Jesus may not have necessarily just flat out said, I am God in the flesh, but Jesus certainly did a lot of things that only God himself could do. Let's look at a couple of those examples. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, there's this uh, story of this paralytic, right? The holes cut out through the ceiling. His his friends lower him down into the little room where Jesus is meeting and healing people and all those sort of things. And what does Jesus do in this moment? He he just forgives his sin. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we kind of read that if we're familiar with Scripture, and we're like, oh yeah, Jesus forgives sins, got it. But this was a... If we'll notice just a few verses later, the religious leaders get irate. They get angry. And why do they? Well, first off, like, like the only person who has the authority to forgive sins is who? God. Right? Like in the Jewish culture and belief in the Old Testament, the only person who has the authority to forgive sins is God. And the only people that are allowed to go to the temple and present sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people are Levites. Now, Jesus isn't a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus isn't a priest. He's just some former carpenter that's been going around teaching. So Jesus shows in this moment that he has the right and the authority to forgive sins. He doesn't offer a sacrifice. He doesn't go to the temple to offer a sacrifice on behalf of this guy. He just flat out says right there to this man on this mat, what, your sins are forgiven. Many scholars believe and, and point to the fact that Mark is, is, is easily the earliest gospel written. And it's clear at the beginning of Mark's gospel, he gives a very vivid and, and, and serious example of Jesus. Maybe not just fully saying, I am God, but certainly acting in a way that he believes himself to be God because he believes he has the authority to forgive sins. Second, he has the authority to determine people's eternal destiny. Eternal destiny. You can find examples of this in Luke chapter 12 and John chapter 10. But Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 that that the Son of Man Himself, He'll have the authority to determine who is able to stand before the Lord and who has eternal life. Again, Jesus is putting Himself in a place that no other human being has dared to go because it seems that Jesus believes Himself to be exactly who the Scriptures point to Him to be, which is God in the flesh. The third example that we can look at if you're taking notes is that he had the authority, or he shows the authority, to teach divine truth in his own name. He has the authority to teach divine truth in his own name. Best example of this that we can see is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus often says, listen, like, like you've heard it said, but I say to you, Right? He begins to deepen the teachings of the Old Testament and challenge the interpretations of the Pharisees. And here's the thing, if, if Jesus was like a good Jewish rabbi that was just a good teacher, typically those men would teach in accordance with kind of a long line of Jewish sort of rabbinic tradition. 
right? Like, like for example, like the rabbi Gamaliel said that the rabbi Hezekiah said that the rabbi Ananias said that the rabbi Joshua said that the prophets have said. Like, they would base it back in a long line of other Jewish rabbis and teachers all the way back to the prophets. Jesus does none of that. Whose authority does he teach in? Whose authority does he teach in to be able to say, you've heard it said one way, but I say to you, his own authority. Again, standing in the very place that's only reserved for God himself. Another example is that we see that Jesus had the ability to heal, to raise the dead, and to cast out demons. And again, he does all of this by his own authority and his own name. We, we see several examples, and we could list many others. But Jesus believed himself to be God. Maybe not just necessarily by verbally saying it, but by the way that he lived and the way that he taught and the things that he did, he certainly believed himself to be divine. Now here's point number three in our last point this morning. Not only do we believe Jesus is God in the flesh, we also believe Jesus was fully human. Fully human. This is a vital part of our Christian confession, that not only was Jesus fully God, but He also was fully human. He understood what it was like to experience suffering, isolation, rejection, pain, and, and death itself. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16 tells us that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us Hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find help, we, or excuse me, we may receive mercy and find grace in, to help us in our time of need. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life life, but he was yet still fully human, and he was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet he was without sin. This is important to know because as we begin to talk about the revelation and Jesus being the fullest expression of God's nature, it's important for us to see and recognize that we don't serve a God who is unable to sympathize with our needs, right? Being a human being is tough. Anybody agree with that? No? Okay. Good for you. We need tips. Y'all share your secret, whoever, whoever's like, nah, man, it's easy. It's easy. I don't know what y'all's problem is. Being a human being is tough. It's difficult. Life can be tough. It can be difficult. It can be messy. It can be hard. Everybody sitting in this room has experienced some level of rejection, maybe loneliness, maybe isolation, maybe fear, maybe worry. Maybe losing a loved one, maybe suffering a serious disease yourself. We, we, we are, whether it's you in this room or some loved one that you know, we've all at some level experienced what it's like to be human, and it can be really, really difficult. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus understands that weight. He understands that weight. And, and because of that, because we have a great high priest who is, un, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, we can draw near to Him with confidence to receive mercy and grace and to find help in our time of need. What a great, what great news. 
Because sometimes we have this image and this picture of God who's just kind of up there and he's angry all the time and he's just like, when you sin and mess up, he's thinking like, oh, well, you know, can't believe you did that, you know. You know, man, you sure are sorry, right? Like, he's not, he's not a God who's just constantly berating us, who's constantly ready to strike us down the second we step out of line. He's a God who says when we sin and we mess up or we experience pain, we experience difficulty, he says, yeah, I know. I get what it means to live the life that you're living. I get what it means to walk in your shoes. Can I, can I just tell you, there's no other faith that teaches a God like that. There's no other faith that presents their deity as a God who is willing to lower himself, to become a human being, to experience the full weight of humanity, and to die brutal, horrific, embarrassing death on a cross. There's not one. The Christian faith is the only one that teaches a God who fully reveals himself in such a way that he becomes a human being to die a death that you and I deserve to give us life that we do not deserve. And so as we close, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? What is your personal response to that question? And maybe you don't fully understand what it means to follow Jesus, but you know and you believe that he is the Messiah. Maybe there are things that you don't fully get. I, I always, John chapter 6 is always a weird passage, you know, towards the end of John chapter 6 because Jesus just got done telling all these people that had gathered around him that if they want to be his followers, that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It's one of those passages we kind of just gloss over a little bit because we're like, I don't really fully. Clearly, he's pointing to the idea of the Lord's Supper and his, his death on the cross and resurrection. But in the moment, they don't fully grasp this. And it says that a lot of his followers deserted Jesus. They just left. And he turns to his disciples. He says, what about you? Are you guys going to leave too? And their response is, where else should we go? You're the only one who has the words. You're the only one who has the keys to eternal life. In other words, I think the disciples are like, you know, we don't fully understand what you meant by that. But we're willing to trust you and follow you and find out. Following your response to Jesus, if you truly believe him to be who he says he is, that should cause us to follow him. And here's the thing, as we, as we wrap up, there's no middle ground here. There's no middle ground. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus was either one of three things. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. He was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. Some people say Jesus was a good teacher. Well, good teachers don't go around pretending to be God unless they are. Good teachers don't let other people, like we see Thomas after the resurrection, worshiping Jesus as a God. Good teachers don't allow those sort of things. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, hey. So Jesus couldn't just be a good teacher by himself. Or Jesus was just crazy and off his rocker. Or he was exactly who he said he was, which is God in the flesh God fully revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Again, who do you say Jesus is? And what is your response to that question that he asked each and every one of us here today? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to have a time of response. Heads bowed and eyes closed. There's a couple different ways that you can respond. If, if you don't know Jesus... 
And you, and you had to honestly answer that question. You, you, you've never really truly answered it. You, you, maybe you don't know. Maybe you're confused. But you realize that the way the Scriptures reveal Himself to us, that He is truly the Lord. Maybe you need to come get saved. Come down front during this time. I'd love to be able to walk you through that decision. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you haven't followed in that first step of obedience to Jesus but being baptized. Maybe you need to join and commit to this church, this body of believers, by becoming a member. My prayer is that you would move however the Spirit causes you to move this morning. So I'm going to pray. When I say amen, we're going to stand and you respond however the Lord is leading you in this time. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you how you reveal yourself to us in the fullest way possible, in the person of your son. God, I I pray that each and every one of us in here, we would ask that question of our own hearts and lives. Who do we say you are? Who do we say the person Jesus is? If our answer is correct and that you are the Lord, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, you are God in the flesh. May our lives reflect that by following you, by taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following after you. I pray that as you respond, you give us hearts would be receptive to you this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond together? God will make a Where there seems to be no way, He works in ways we cannot see. Before we're dismissed, I just wanted to give you a couple of quick announcements. One, uh, we're going to have a breakfast on October the 16th on Sunday morning 
at 9 a.m. And so that's for, for everyone to attend. Also, on that Sunday, uh, Chris and I will be starting a new mixed adult class. And so if you don't have a small group um, that you're currently attending or a part of, um, we would love for you to join us. That'll be starting as well on October the 16th. And we'll be meeting over in the Family Life Center. And so uh, we'd love for you to, to participate in that, in that with us as well. Um, Kara, would you uh, pray for us? And then uh, we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our Pastor Steve and for sharing the gospel this morning. And we just pray that everybody drives home safely and just has a blessed week and that we just remember that, that God is good and he's going to take care of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.